Coming up on the show, I discover a networking miracle. Alex has been playing with electrics, and we review the WiseCam 3. I'm Chris. And I'm Alex, and this is Self-Hosted. Well, this is a bit of a low-hanging fruit, isn't it? I remember a time before Google, and that was what it was like this morning, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's where you're going with that. Oh, yeah, right, because as we record this, uh, Google had itself a bit of an outage. Um, they experienced a system outage that was due to an internal storage quota issue, according to Google. <laughs> so Google ran out of storage. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, then, you know, it wasn't, what, more than a month ago that uh, there was a big outage with Amazon when one of their, just one of their regions went out? I'm always reluctant to say cloud bad, local good, but, you know, sometimes it is it is nice to wake up to these notifications, you know, you see on Twitter and stuff, people losing their minds, and you're like, Oh, um, I didn't even notice. <laughs> well, this is why I think it's good to have a little balance. I mean, you and I have a very balanced approach to it. It's you have a little bit of here, you have a little bit of there, and you have a little bit of knowledge, maybe across several clouds too, if you're going to cloud host. So that way, not one outage takes you out. But, you know, there's nothing you can really do other than educate yourself, which is why this episode is brought to you by a cloud guru. You know, this whole tech area moves really fast, so you need to keep up to date. It's sort of just the way it works, and that's what ACG does. Their courses and labs are always online and obsessively updated. And they curate all the news on AWS, Kubernetes, Linux, and more, so stay up to date at cloudguru.com. And it's why I've opted to move some of our storage here offline at the studio. I have more and more that I store at the studio and more and more services that we run on-premises than ever before. And... Even this that you this tool that you and I are using to communicate, uh, once the session is established, it's peer-to-peer. And the tool you and I are using to write, CodyMD, is self-hosted. It's up on a cloud server that we control, that we self-host. Yeah, the downside is when all those alerts start firing, it's you that has to fix them. I've said this many times. Yes. That is the downside of self-hosting. Absolutely. It, it is absolutely that. And then the more people that you have using it, the more stressful that gets. That's why I kind of really like my my home network because it's it's this knowable problem with a set limit on users and a set limit on severity of of everything, right? So if there's an outage for a day, it's okay. We'll just we'll get by. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, what's funny is this week I've been doing hardware shuffles in my house. I've been rebuilding servers and moving hard drives around between different cases and boxes and stuff. Uh, it was really as a, a consequence of the Helios review, realizing that device wasn't going to be suitable for my main uh, NAS. I bought a UNAS chassis off of eBay for 125 I think. Uh takes eight three-and-a-half-inch drives, so I've been moving stuff around all week, and I didn't want to have Plex online whilst I did that so that libraries didn't index stuff that was missing and, and things like that. And... I got it back up last night after about five or six days, and Catherine went, oh, I've really missed this. Yeah, they would definitely miss it if there was an outage, that's for sure. But it is a different scale of uh, severeness, I guess is what I'm thinking. But it was still kind of even with that, I just I just recently completed kind of a rechange of my home server setup in Lady Jupes. Yeah, you. Uh, I saw on Instagram, you've got like a sexy LED home server cupboard going on now, right? Well, previously on Self-Hosted, Alex, uh, <laughs> you remember when uh, I was uh, talking about my upgraded LTE system and there was one component that still had to get wired in, and that was the antenna that goes externally. And, and so when I talked about it last time on the show, I was using an antenna array that was internal to the RV. And I have this seven in one that is on the roof that does all these great things, uh, but it, it needed to be completely wired in. And where I wanted to wire it in, I was not comfortable drilling myself because it was where some wiring has been done for the solar panel. So really wanted to be careful and have an expert's eye on it. And I brought it into the shop. I waited because they were super busy. I bring it into the shop and he says, we can't drill there. He looks at it. And he says, yeah, we can't drill there. And I was a little devastated because this spot that I had was where I was going to move everything because those who've been listening for a while know that over the summer when I traveled to Texas, I had severe thermal issues with where I had put all my server gear. And I have identified a new spot that uh, would be perfect. It's ventilated. It's got power. And if I could just bring the antenna in right there, it would have been ideal, Alex. But the problem is that antenna's cord length can't be any longer than six feet. 
So where that antenna goes, everything else has to go. What does it plug into? Is it like an RPSMA on the end of it? or Essentially, it plugs into my router. The antenna feeds into my router, which is just these small standard antenna connections. Ethernet then? They're common RF coax connectors. Specifically, these are jack female and male plugs that come. And there's like six or seven, there's seven of them that come in as a bundle that are all really kind of tightly bundled together that plug in directly to the back of my Pepwave router. Oh, okay, so it's like uh, the thing that goes into the back of your cable box or something like that. Very similar, right? Right, and so that means the router has to be there, which kind of dictates where the switch goes, which then kind of dictates where the servers go, because I don't want to have my servers connected back to my switch over Wi-Fi. And it kind of just, it's a whole domino effect of where all the equipment goes. And when this spot that I had really picked out that from a thermal solution was going to be perfect, so when that didn't work out, my... My only other spot was was plan B, and it was up in the driver's cab area where there is uh, some cupboards that get very hot, Alex, <laughs> like a like a pizza oven hot. <laughs> so I, I, we, we, we wrecked a pair of headphones by leaving them in there over the summer. Like the, they just disintegrated the plastic. Oh, no. <laughs> I really didn't want to put the antenna in this spot. But it, when you look at the wiring and what's available and the distances it needs from metal objects on the roof and all the solar panels I have up there, <laughs> which I didn't consider this problem when I went all solar crazy, I had to put it up in this front cab. And that's where it just had to go. And that's so, the, so then I had to figure out a way to get enough equipment in this cupboard that could be maybe somehow have a chance of succeeding. I knew I couldn't put the Raspberry Pis in there, though. And after years of research, Alex. And I'm not kidding you. I cannot, I could not exaggerate this point enough. I watch four or five to a dozen RV videos a day for the last five years, literally seven days a week. I'm a member of several RV community forums, including community forums that are specifically about mobile data and networking in RVs that have an $80 a year membership fee. So we're talking like people who really want to be in this club, who really are detailed. And nowhere ever has anyone ever told me if Powerline Networking works in an RV. Those of you who are not familiar with Powerline Networking, it's essentially a way to transmit data over the power line, kind of, kind of like how DSL works. It's that over your power line in your house. And there's certain limitations, and an RV is certainly no home. And so because I had never seen anybody ever talk about this, I assumed it was absolutely impossible. But I figured I'll give it a go, Alex. I picked up these TP-Link AV1000 adapters. Have you ever tried this power line networking stuff? I did, actually, and this is when I was a teenager a while ago. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was slow and and it was fairly reliable and it, it certainly beat running an ethernet cable through brick and plasterboard walls in England, but uh, has it gotten better now? Yes. Um because the last time I tried it was probably no joke, probably about 18 years ago. No, maybe 15 years ago. And it's been a long time. And I got maybe 8, 10, 11 megabits back then if I was lucky. Funny, I think that's probably exactly the same sort of time frame 15 18 years ago they kind of just had their moment back then because wi-fi wasn't really reliable they faded after wi-fi got so popular god i remember struggling with wi-fi drivers on windows xp i think that was what drove me to powerline ethernet <laughs> right well and remember like the early stuff was only like 11 megabits in the home yeah which was just not even enough to stream videos to like the xbox or something mm -hmm. so that's what i started using it for was to connect whatever i was using back then as a media server to my Xbox that was either hacked or, or just trying to use DLNA or something to play video. <laughs> and it was just enough back then. But in the intervening years, they've kept at it. And I think TP-Link is one of the standout companies in this area now. And I, I've, been, I've been happier and happier with TP-Link since I got their, their Casa devices and they just integrated so easily into Home Assistant. And so I, they were, when I saw TP-Link was in this market, they were one of the first I looked at. And I picked up a, an AV1000 kit. Now, on the box, it claims it's going to get you 1,000 megabits. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know if that's possible. Maybe if nothing else is plugged in, I'm not sure. But, you know, I, I'd have been happy with a good solid 100 megabits. Because what I decided to do was put the router, a switch 
a couple of items that I need for um, my uh, POE gear for the for the junkyard that's POE, which I'll, I can talk about more in a bit. And that's about it. Like on a really small switch. I got like a really cheap TP-Link gigabit switch. I installed them all. They all have to be kind of really kind of well held down because it's moving. So I installed them all using this industrial grade Velcro on top of a large laptop cooling fan. So the router and the switch and the PoE gear have air blowing on them from this laptop cooling fan. And then we drilled ventilation holes in underneath and in the back of the cab so it can draw air and ex, you know, exit air to hopefully get a little bit of airflow going. I'm going to I'm going to actually add a fan to the exit hole, but I just haven't done it yet. And then the PoE adapter sits in there and it connects back to the booth where I have now a reduced Raspberry Pi load. And I've split up some of the Wi-Fi and the and the and the internet connectivity gear from the server gear and I've linked them up over PoE and it worked out of the box in the RV. They they, they just immediately saw each other. I had to I zero configuration, plug one in, plug the other one in. Boom, they're online and I'm getting 300 megabits transfer rate between them. That's perfect. It's great, Alex. It's great. And so it means now I can spread out the load. And I, I would really appreciate any experience the audience has with these Powerline adapters. What happens if I add another one? What happens if I add two more? Do I have to add them in pairs? How does that work? Because what I was thinking is that original spot that I had thought would work really well for the servers, if I could spread things out a little bit, I could maybe put a Powerline adapter in there and and set some stuff up in that in that original spot I was thinking of that would have been so great. Take advantage of the cooling there and connect it all together with power line networking. But I really don't want to have a have an impact on the performance. And looking at the way the technology works, it seems like any more traffic you put on the power line, it, it will reduce performance. But are we talking by 50 percent or are we talking 5 percent? It's just not clear to me. And, and it's not really clear to me if they have to, if it has to be done in pairs or what? So it's it feels a little bit like black magic. Um, it feels like I stumbled onto something that no one in the RV community is talking about. This is a fundamental game changer for networking in a van or other, you know, a bus or an RV. This is a this as far as I'm concerned, this changed my life. And I'm not kidding you. This changed my life because before today, I was a I'll always have to be Wi-Fi in my RV guy. And I don't like that. I don't like it for media playback. I don't like it for connecting servers back to routers and switches. I'm just not, I want a wired backhaul. I always have. It's maybe because I've been doing this for forever. This means even if in small quantities, I can have that, it's going to forever change how I, how I have my home set up forever. It's so great. And they're the TP-Link AV1000s. They claim a gigabit, at least in my setup, I'm getting 300 megabits. And when I thought through the way that electrical works in the RV, it seems obvious because the way the electrical done is pretty much like a traditional house that goes back to a fuse panel, you know, a box. And then that goes down to the Victron system that where the solar's at. So I'm, I'm delighted. I put all that together in this cupboard. And then I did, you know, because this is the self-hosted podcast, I had to put a, a uh, AOTech multi-sensor in there so I could monitor the temperature of the, of the cupboard. Because it's um, it's a glass cupboard, it's got a see-through glass, I decided to put some LED light strips in there. <laughs> and I made it, at least for a little bit, it was rotating rainbow colors, so that way the family would see it and remember what an awesome setup <laughs> Dad built for them. <laughs> and it just was really cool in Star Trek. Uh, but now what I've done is, it's just a nice glow, and then um, when the cupboard reaches 85 degrees or higher, the... Uh, LED light strip will come on with a bright red and I, you know, it'll glow red. The cupboard will start glowing red because it's very bright. And that'll be an in, a visual indicator that the cupboard's getting too hot, which I won't have to worry about now because it's, you know, the middle of winter, <laughs> but in the summer. Idea for you. When you open the door, you have the uh, whoosh, uh, Star Trek door noise play through Alexa or something. <laughs> It'd be, that'd be awesome to add some sound effects. It's really pretty great. Um, it works super solid. I, I've even had a chance to take it out into the woods last week and uh, test the entire setup, the the automatic cellular switch over. And Alex, if it if it wasn't perfect, it was it, it became perfect when I actually experienced an outage. AT and T's tower just went out, just went offline. But the bonded VPN setup that I have through this router 
never missed a beat. I was on a call when it happened, and the, it was a Wi-Fi call, and it stayed connected. It just switches over to Verizon, and then it manages, and then when, when AT&T came back on 10 minutes later, it just integrated it right back. It was perfect. The whole thing worked exactly like I wanted. We spent five days off-grid in the woods with a, with about an 80 megabit cellular connection where it was a little bit a uh, little bit slower than last time because we went down a little bit further into the into canyon but it was great alex it was so perfect it was it really felt like i had reached the peak technological point where we 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 have the home home assistant doing the automation and we have the pep wave doing the cellular routing the backbone of it's this power line network networking that links the server switch to the to the telco switch um the all of the all of the in-house streaming is just working so good to the TVs like everything is really humming along right now important question then when are you going to come and see me <laughs> yeah i know well i get you know i guess it's better to come down there when it's warm so i can put it all through the thermal testing um, <laughs> oh, the other thing I got to consider is like, do I want to drill another hole in the side of the cupboard? And this is a, this is a spot where you can see it. I'll put a link to the pictures in the show notes. You can see so everybody can visualize what I'm talking about. Do I want to drill a hole and run an ethernet cable through there? Because I've got this extension cable and I run POE out to a, a wisp antenna at, at my home base. And it, it just, it's, I don't know what to do with it. I, I just, I hate to drill a hole somewhere like that where you can see it. So, and I'm not very good with that kind of stuff. So right now I just kind of have run, running through the door with the door slightly cracked and then the cord comes into the POE adapter. Oh yeah, because that looks better. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not permanent, you know, so it's like I haven't committed. <laughs> Get yourself a 3D printer, uh, drill a hole, and then print a custom cable grommet for it. Ooh, that sounds really fancy. You're right, I do need to come visit. I'll come down there and we'll work on that. Okay, power usage time. I promised this last week. And again, this is a follow-up almost or kind of, to the Helios stuff. So we're talking in the Discord with uh, King Hat, actually, I think his username is, about the power usage of the Helios and things like that. And in, in last week's episode, I proclaimed it was 30 watts at full load, no matter what you did. But I've done a little bit more testing and a bit more detail and compared it to my dual Xeon setup, uh, an i5-8500 and the Helios. So here we go. The Helios is, of course, uh, an ARM-based CPU, so low idle power draw is its bread and butter, you would think, wouldn't you? I would hope. That'd be, like, maybe number one reason I'm buying it. Uh-huh. So 14 watts at, at idle. So what I did, I did a 10-minute average with uh, with uh, one of my smart plugs. It has metering built in, and I used Home Assistant to measure a 10 minute average rolling average of each of each of these numbers you're about to hear so the helios was 14 watts no hard drives or anything just idle running at bone stock debian install that was all it was doing just there was no services running nothing plugged into the network ssh'd in uh, and that was it running htop i think brilliant that you thought to test it baseline without the disk that's that's a great idea and so then i thought hmm i've got an i5 8500 cpu here with uh, with my um, Blue Iris box. So why don't I do the same test with that? 23 watts. So we're talking a 9 watt difference between an i5-8500 and the Helios 64. And there is a significant, uh, to sound like you there, significant <laughs> <laughs> difference between the two in terms of capabilities. Well, yeah, that's a good way to put it because it's not just performance, is it? It's also compatibility. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so then for giggles, I did my uh, dual Xeon system as well. And that one, as you would expect, was atrocious. 140 watts at idle. Ooh. So 10 times the Helios. Yeah, that's bad. That said, the dual Xeon did have 128 gigs of RAM in there. So that might have contributed to it. Again, all of these systems had no hard drives connected. It was literally just bare minimum, minimum viable system to get these numbers. So then I did a full load 10-minute average using STUI, S2E, something we've covered on LUP previously, I think. And so the uh, Helios, and again, no drives, 20 watts. So you went from 14 to 20 at full load. So the CPU is only drawing 6 watts is what we can conclude from that, I think, uh, when it's under full load. The i5 jumped up to 93 watts, but the dual Xeon, 410. <laughs> Jeez, that's like that's like running a kitchen appliance practically. 
Yeah, it's it's legit. And, you know, you, you think about the requirements that that creates. Um, I have a, a UPS in my basement. Uh, I, so when I when I moved here a couple of years ago, I accidentally ordered the backup battery, like additional battery, instead of the UPS part itself. Oh, I've done that once. <laughs> and so I went to return it to Amazon and they said, oh, no, keep it. It's too expensive to return. It's hazardous materials or something. Hmm. And so I ordered the actual UPS part and connected that in. And so I've got like a half an hour, 40 minute runtime on three, 400 watts, but uh, it's, it's noisy. Um, when the fans start spinning in the UPS, you, you can hear it. You wouldn't want it in the house. And so when you've got like a 400 watt load going through it, you have to size everything accordingly. So you've got Helios at 20, i5 at 90, and the Dual Xeon at 410 watts. Big difference. Now, what I thought would be interesting to do would be to add some hard drives into the mix. So I added eight drives because the i5 uh, CPU I put in the UNAS chassis, which has eight three and a half inch bays. The Helios only takes five, of course. So take take these numbers with a little bit of a grain of salt. But the Helios with uh, five drives was fifty one watts at idle, which was higher than I was expecting, to be honest with you. One watt of twenty four seven operation costs approximately a dollar per year that's how you that's how i tend to think of it hmm. uh, to, to run so 50 watts is 50 bucks a year now the i5 system was 98 watts so twice what the helios does but i would argue way more than twice as capable uh, but the interesting thing is that the xeon system was only 185 watts with all those drives connected so the uh, eight drives in the Xeon system added 45 watts to the overall system. Whereas with the i5 system, for some reason, it added like 65, 70 watts. It just didn't make sense to me. So I ran the test again and came up with the same numbers three times. So it must be correct. But with the Helios, five drives added about 35 watts or so. So it's just an interesting little experiment. Yeah, it is. It's interesting. So you think of it in terms of total cost annually, power consumption, and I think of it as how many hours does that shave off my ability to run off of batteries? That's always the math I'm doing. And that is a super high cost because less battery time sometimes means I stay at an area less, which means I can maybe work less and I have to pack up and move everything and bring the slides in sooner. So it has a pretty high cost for me. Yeah. Um, so I sometimes my baseline is can what how low can I get the power draw and can it do the core job I need it to do? But I, I like to go a little bit above that. And I feel like that's where the Raspberry Pis are for me. And I you know, I, I mean what are they, fifteen watts, twenty watts, those? I should I should have tested a pie. I I'm kicking myself for not doing that now. maybe next time. But here's where it gets really interesting is when you want to start transcoding video. Yes, right. This is for me primarily a media server. Yeah. And so Plex is going to be the primary creator of of heat, of noise, of electricity consumption and stuff like that. So But this seems like an area where probably the Intels would probably clearly have an advantage. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So the Helios 64 I didn't even bother because uh, I started trying to do a 4K transcode and it was just a full load. And after eight minutes, the uh, 4K stream hadn't even started playing. So <laughs> I just gave up with the Helios. <laughs> Fail. <laughs> I know 4K transcoding is a torch test, but that's kind of the point of this exercise, right? Uh, you know, my philosophy is try to get the best quality you can and then down, downstream it to devices for compatibility because your screens are only going to get better over time. And, you know, I, I know a friend who back when HD was coming along, he said it was it was too much storage to capture the HD versions. I'm just going to capture the standard definition. They're fine. And now his entire collection looks like total garbage. Right. And <laughs> yeah, he's watching off of my Plex server. Yep. And so then I did a, uh, a 4K. So this was a 4K high bitrate file. I actually downloaded it from YouTube with YouTube DL. It was one of the Costa Rica things. So it was a, a constant uh, constant file. And I, I downsampled it, I guess, or transcoded it to 720p at 2 megabytes per second. So down from like a 40 or 50 megabit a second down to 2. So I was doing quite a lot of processing. Now, with the i5 at uh this is software transcoding only uh this was with no drives connected by the way just 
a little bit confusing, but this was before I put the drives in. i5, 75 watts. The dual Xeon, 304. So the dual Xeon was a lot more performant than the i5. The, the stream started playing after only eight seconds instead of about 15 or 16 with the i5, but at a th- more than three times the energy cost. Hmm. So that would be an area probably where I'd be willing to take that compromise. Mm-hmm. Now, the Xeon CPUs don't have quick sync. And this is, this is where the real magic happens. The i5 does. And this is the entire reason I selected this CPU. Do you want to take a guess at what a 4K transcode with quick sync drew? We were at 75 with software, 75 watts. 70, okay, so we're at 75 watts of software, quick sync being the CPU accelerated uh, encoder decoder in the Intel CPU. Yes, for H.264 content. Uh, so idle to 23 watts, transcode is 75. Where do you think quick sync put us? I'm going to say 60 watts. Wrong. <laughs> 35. <gasps> Whoa. Quick sync was using 12 watts to do this. Game changer. That is huge, huge, huge game changer. Mm-hmm. Huh. Absolutely phenomenal. And to top that off, this, the performance matched the Xeon. So it started playing in nine seconds instead of 16. Oh, that is fantastic. Did you have to do any finagling to get QuickSync working? Because it sounds like you tested it in both on and off modes. No. So Plex, uh, you need the, you need Plex Pass to enable hardware transcoding. Uh, I run my Plex in a container, of course. I use the Linux server one, obviously. And uh, I you, you pass through the device, so slash dev slash DRI, and check the hard check the hardware um, the hardware encoding box in the settings of Plex, and you're good to go. That's it. Well, I may be picking your brain on that because thanks to JDM's recommendation from Server Builds, I picked up a ThinkPad IdeaPad on a Black Friday sale for $150, and it has an i5 with QuickSync in it. And I'm just in the process of slowly upgrading it because I had to order a part from Alibaba. And <laughs> so I'm just kind of putting it all together thinking if I replace the pies, this is what I replace it with. And... uh I would love to get access to QuickSync. Now, are you, you're running it native on the host, so it's not like through a VM. Is QuickSync available? Well, I was for the testing, but then when I wanted to move it into production, I decided to put Proxmox on the UNAS box, the, the new the new NAS I'm building. I looked into PCI pass-through of the Intel GPU in order to give the VM access to QuickSync, and then you could pass that through to the container. Some people will think I'm mad for running a container in a VM when I could just run the container on the native host, but whatever, that's what I choose to do. <laughs> Enjoy it. <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like it. I mean, it's a lot of layers of snapshots and backups and recovers. Yeah, it is. Now, the coolest thing is something called Intel GVT-G. Snappy name, but awesome, awesome thing you can do here. So this is kind of like the SRIOV stuff that Wendell's been banging on about on his YouTube channel for the last few weeks with uh, asking NVIDIA to create virtual GPUs that you can pass through to VMs. So using the Intel GPU built into your CPU, I've passed that virtual GPU through to the VM and then given the Plex Docker container access to that virtual GPU. So what this means is PCI pass-through used to be, you know, you'd have to have one GPU per VM. But with this virtual GPU slice, I can have three or four VMs all hooked into that QuickSync hardware. So what I'm going to try over the next couple of weeks is running Blue Iris in a VM as well and using the QuickSync hardware for Plex and Blue Iris at the same time. Awesome. And does Proxmox give you the UI to do this pass-through, or is this a command line thing you had to do? How'd that work? It's command line, but the documentation is is really great. If you've got any familiarity with kernel parameters and grub and passing that kind of stuff, uh, it's it's pretty easy, to be honest with you. If you don't, feel free to hit me up in the Discord. This is something I'm really, really... It's what got me interested in Linux in the first place was PCI pass-through. So <laughs> I'd be happy to help anybody get this sorted. I know Unraid makes it easy to pass that stuff through through the GUI, but I don't mind drop it I just it would be nice if Proxmox just had that built in. But it if it's if it's doable at all, that gives me hope because that's how I want to base my next setup as well. I don't know if I'm gonna do it because 
I mean, what I have now is working really well. And um, I feel like there's more and more people out in the world that are trying to build things on Raspberry Pis. I see it all the time in the home assistant forums and on, on the various different uh, home lab reddits and whatnot that people are are trying these Raspberry Pis out. And I feel like in a way it's sort of beneficial to be there and talking about it here on the show. But at the same time, like I wonder if I could take two or three Raspberry Pis, I only have two running at the moment, and consolidate it all down to one ThinkPad with QuickSync, all based on Proxmox. I, I'd really like the way, I'd like how solid that is, you know? And then it's got the crash cart built in if anything goes wrong. <laughs> I was astonished, honestly. I, I put together this spreadsheet and I couldn't believe my eyes. 35 watts. So you want to offset when you're buying this stuff. At idle, I'm saving approximately $100 a year over my Jules Eon setup. And when it's doing transcoding and stuff like that, the, the energy usage is, is minimal. So instead of doing a 300 watts burst for a few minutes, it's doing a 35 watt burst for a few minutes, you know? So huge. That's huge. I think over a year, uh, I'm probably going to save 100 to 150 dollars or so, which you know starts to pay for this this used gear off eBay. I think I paid 100 for the CPU, 100 for the motherboard, and 100 for the case. So in three years, it will pay for itself approximately. So that's kind of the lesson, isn't it? Like having gone through the whole gamut, because I've seen your setup. It's a it's an impressive server grade setup. You're now kind of on the other end of it, going okay. Now after I've done that, I think I'm going to go more consumer grade with my hardware, and maybe I even prefer it. What enabled it, and we talked about this in LUP last week, was the uh, Pi KVM project. So now I can get uh, like a BMC IPMI grade remote access to the system when I'm not in front of it using the Pi. So that was like the final missing piece of the jigsaw for me. Yeah, obligatory plug. You should check out that episode of Unplugged because uh, it was pretty cool Pi KVM setup. Not the like virtualization KVM. No, no. We're talking about the keyboard video mouse kind of KVM. You remember those? Episode 383, by the way. Ah, there you go. I was, <laughs> I was just looking for it. Yes, 383, Murder of a Distro, where Alex covers that. But um, I think there's just one obvious conclusion from all of this, which I don't think you've touched on yet. What's that? Well, you clearly need to buy an Apple M1 device to uh, compare <laughs> and contrast the power draw to performance now. Oh, no, you've triggered half the audience. They're fed up of hearing about the Apple, Apple stuff now. <laughs> <laughs> so whilst we're on the topic of home automation, sort of, uh, it was the Home Assistant Conference this weekend. Yeah, it was a big deal. They had they had some ridiculous amount of people get tickets for this thing. Um, and they used a, a pretty decent platform to, uh, to like, get a kind of kind of like conference experience where you had a reception area and you had different speaking rooms and each room had chat areas. It was very easy to navigate. Probably the best UI I have seen yet. Uh, I think it's called Hopin, just H-O-P-I-N was the platform and one of the better ones. How many of these virtual conferences have you attended this year, Alex? I've got fatigue, uh, a half a dozen or so. I just, I, so what happens is I put them on in YouTube, a live stream or whatever. And then there's a couple of speakers that uh, you know, start buffering or something goes wrong and then I lose interest and I go and do something else. <laughs> yeah, they're rough, right? I I I have watched a lot and I, I know you weren't as big of a fan, but this was, as far as these virtual conferences go, I think one of the better, better ones, honestly, from both the experience of participating and attending. I even connected with a speaker who did, who had a talk on his off-grid bus uh, so obviously that was a talk I was interested in and uh, he and I are going to communicate and uh, collaborate on what we're doing for our rigs. And I'm going to maybe even invite him on for one of the shows, maybe this show in the future. And that was really great. So I actually even had that, that conference like experience where that was one of the things I love about going is I would network and meet people and then, you know, convert them into guests or maybe even one day co-hosts. Uh, right. Yeah. Who would that be? So this is the first one out of all of the virtual conferences I attended that actually facilitated that. And they really tried to make it a little bit better. You know, the participants really had their stuff together. I think everybody had done an audio and mic check. So it was it was rough because it's a virtual conference. But as far as virtual conferences goes, it was one of the better ones I attended. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But there's some big news announced as far as Home Assistant goes. They announced their first hardware device, which we knew this was coming, but we just didn't know like when it would actually show up. It's Home Assistant Blue. You ordered one, didn't you? I did. <laughs> I was, you know what? I'm not even kidding. 
I tell you what, I was looking at the Odroid N2 Plus thinking to myself, you know, if this laptop doesn't work out, maybe this is the route I go because it's got pretty good performance. Um, the, I know that the developers, the Home Assistant developers, have talked about how they like it before. It has eMMC instead of S, uh, SD cards. So they have what they've announced is a $140 all-in-one device with a blue logoed metal chassis in, in a case with a essential plug-and-play kind of pitch for this device. What's special about the Odroid? Uh, was it N2 Plus? Yeah, the N2 Plus. It's a six-core CPU, so you've got a lot of processing power there. Um, it has a decent amount of USB while also still having gigabit. And I think that eMMC is just, it's faster, it's more reliable, it lasts longer. So I think when you look at it compared to the Raspberry Pi 4, it's kind of a bit of a better candidate. Although the Pi 4 with USB disk, it's a pretty good contender too because it's so well supported as such a you know a network effect, an ecosystem. Interesting. I'd be, I'd be really curious to take your thoughts on that. The the chassis, like the case of it, looks pretty cool. Like you can swap the lid around. Yeah, I, and I want to support them. I like what they're doing. You know, this kind of stuff it feeds directly back into the project. Kind of, kind of why I'm 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 now just comfortably paying for Nebuchadnezzar Cloud because it's paying for now eight full time developers. Well, eight full time staff members, some of which are developers that are working on Home Assistant, and their incentive is to make Home Assistant better. And it's, it is a value for value that I can recognize and I'm comfortable with. They're, they're not getting the value from my information. They're not getting value from selling ad placements or special gold, gold standard integrations in Home Assistant. They're getting, they're getting value by making Home Assistant better and getting more people to use it who then subscribe to Nebuchadnezzar Cloud who then pay them, and then they can continue to de- continue to develop. And it, I like that. You can't see me, but I'm I'm nodding, and I think it's a really great way to kind of give back to the project in in a way that gets you something. You know, with the remote access portion and the uh, the lady cylinder integrations that that they have. Um, but the, the you know the important thing is that it's a choice, right? It's not when you buy a product that comes with a subscription, you have to pay it in order to continue using the thing that you've purchased. With with Home Assistant. And choosing to support the project because I want to. And I, I think that's a, a key difference. Yes, well put. Thank you. Okay, so they also announced a new versioning system for Home Assistant Core. That's the the core application that, that Home Assistant is built around with Supervisor. Um, it's the version you can install just via Docker. Home Assistant Core is now using calendar versioning. So they're 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 basically at the 1.0, but instead of just going 1.0, which they are doing 1.0 with the beta just to have fun, the date will now consist of the year, month, and patch number to indicate the bug fix level. They're also along with that changing the release cadence a little bit. So Home Assistant Core will now be released every first Wednesday of the month. So it essentially goes from a three-week release cadence to a four-week release cadence. I do get a bit tired of the updates, though, like every three or four weeks or whatever, having to press that button and then clench a little bit as it does the upgrade. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and that's where the numbers kind of start to mean nothing, too. And maybe where the dates will make a little more sense, because you'll look at it and go, I'm only a week behind, no big deal. Or you'll go, oh, this installs a year behind. It'll be a lot more clear now. Yeah, I, I do hope that they find a way to solve the, the 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 stuff changing all the time. Like I was I was messing around earlier. Uh, on the on the terminal of the HA, I think I'm running HasOS, and they have like this command line client of HA something, and it said HA is now deprecated. Please use Core. I'm like, oh, something else has changed. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I can imagine with because if, if you look at the market they're addressing, and how much work it is to really do all of this, it's such a high velocity task. It's going to be a lot of change for a while, and that's why. I have been gravitating more towards uh, a Proxmox setup that is then running an OS with this running inside a container, or maybe I run their custom OS inside a Proxmox that I can snapshot there, and I can also snapshot using Supervisor in Home Assistant because of this very reason, Alex, because it is so core to the function of my home right now that I I can't I can't I I don't I can't stand the idea of something going wrong because one of these updates. So that's why I'm gravitating towards virtualization. They also announced Automation Blueprints. This is huge. So an Automation Blueprint is a pre-created automation with user-settable options. I, I have needed this 
since I've started using Home Assistant. You separate out the logic and the inputs of an automation. So the trigger and what happens can be separated out. So imagine a blueprint that controls a light based on motion that allows you to configure the motion sensor to trigger on and the light to control. It's now possible to create two automations that each have their own configuration for this blueprint and act completely independently, yet are based on the same automation configuration. And then you can share that blueprint with other people. So these blueprints are shareable. I love this because I sometimes have devices that come and go. And so I'd like to keep the trigger series, but have what it triggers and what lights turn on and off or devices outside be able to change. So this is really cool. And blueprints make it a little bit easier to kind of just get started, have a base logic, and then share that with people. So if you had a really easy, like, pretty, you know, basic system that you liked, and then you just save it off to your, for yourself or send it to somebody. When they mention blueprints, all I think of is Factoria. So It does kind of make you think of that. There's actually a lot of other stuff in there. So just a couple other small ones really quick. They now have better non-Google voices via Nebuchadnezzar Home Assistant Cloud. And they say, that the, in their words, stunning quality. Haven't tried them myself. I'll be the judge of that. Thank you, darling. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> Whether it's stunning or not. <laughs> and, and then another thing that's landed, and the, amongst a bunch of other stuff, but another thing that caught my attention, Home Assistant will now have the ability to temporarily disable devices, which imagine, you know, you set up some lighting for the holiday you take them down, you can now disable them and then re-enable them when it's time to put them back up. It's great for guys like me who have outdoor devices at my home base. When I leave right now, they're just like broken and offline. And I really wish I could just go in and toggle them off while I'm gone and then toggle them back on. And wouldn't it be great if I could even automate that? So that's now in there as well. Very neat. Yeah. I mean, overall, I thought it was a good conference. Lots of interesting news came out of it. And uh, yeah, good job, guys. Overall, well done. All right. At the risk of uh, overrunning, Chris, you got a, a new a new camera in the mail this week. Big episode this week, Alex. Huge. Big episode. Huge. Yep. <laughs> I got my Wise three cam. Just got it set up last night. So this is my first impressions. But this is a nineteen ninety nine. I mean, nineteen dollars and ninety nine cents Wi Fi camera when you buy it direct. So we're talking about a twenty dollar camera here that I'm about to tell you about. And no cloud subscription, no monthly subscription for any of the like basic features. You do, you do need the cloud connection to to use their app and and set some of the settings and whatnot, um, unless they release an RTSP firmware. There is not an RTSP firmware for it at this time yet. Does have an SD card slot, so you could pop a micro SD in there and do a little local video recording. No cloud required. And now the thing that's new about the Wise 3 is it's now an indoor or outdoor camera. Lots of people are using their Wise cams as outdoor because, you know, 20 bucks, you could buy a handful of these things, put them all over your yard on your Wi-Fi. I have like eight, nine of these things because I, I have them for the studio. I have them all over the RV. And so I'm pretty familiar with the Wise 2 camera. So this is, it's a nicer looking camera. It, it has that kind of cutesy Wise look, but it's more refined. They put a little rubber booty over the power plug, which is now uh, it has a tail cable that has a female adapter that you plug a the same USB micro adapter into so that if you run any power lines like I have, your power will still work for these cameras, but it is now um, it plugs into this little tail, which means I'll have to redo some of my wire management. But that little tail has that rubber booty, which keeps it dry. So if you put it outside, you're good to go. It has the same versatile mounting options that the version two had so you can screw it in it comes with a really nice little tripod that it sits on that it can pivot on but also you can magnetically mount it which is what i've done so this is extremely nice for me because i can just literally pop the version two off the old magnetic mount and pop version three on and i've just significantly upgraded my cameras it has a better two-way speaker, so you can actually do two-way conversations with people a little more clear now. But the significant big upgrade for the version 3 has got to be the much wider field of view. So I could actually cover more area with less cameras now. It has a 130-degree field of view. And the night performance, which I have not tested yet, I can update you later if, if people are interested, but it's reported to be amazing. On their website, they say it's capable of seeing in color at night with very limited lighting. You can even use it to watch the stars or take a time lapse of the stars. And it does have a time lapse feature. They refer to it as an all new starlight sensor. And I must say the pictures on the website do look very impressive. So I'll be interested to hear your thoughts. 
Yes. I will be testing this soon. Of course, it's nothing but gray clouds. You do live in Seattle, bro. Yeah. Yeah. So it does enroll you in a two-week trial when you first set up the camera. So just be aware of that. It's you know easy to go through. The app for me, the Wise app has been fine, but this I had all kinds of issues. I had weird EULA overlay the, on top of the UI. When, when I wanted to change Wi-Fi networks, it was super clunky, and it made me switch the Wi-Fi network that my phone was on so before I could change the Wi-Fi network that the camera would go on and because it wanted to just transfer the setting. The whole thing was – that part of it I was not very impressed with, and if I have to do this a dozen times over, it's going to be annoying. But um, they do say on their website that they're planning to release an RTSP firmware for this, which I will put on their immediately because then it requires no cloud connectivity. So this is a $20 camera that you can put an RTSP firmware on there and then you can plug it into something like Shinobi or one of the other applications that Alex likes. What was it called? Blue what? Sentinel? Blue Dog? Blue Iris. Blue Iris. Okay. <laughs> Which has been super solid, by the way. Yeah. Sounds like it. Um, so I'd say, you know, for 20 bucks, it's I recommend it with caveats. If you're okay with limited cloud requirements that have some really nice options, like their advanced detection services that it enrolls you in, it's it's really good. And they're adding things like um, vehicle detection, package delivery detection, all that, you know, along with better person detection. So 20 bucks with optional cloud services with a local SD recording, and the company is committed to an RTSP firmware that you will then have to use microSD to reflash it. But once you've done that, it's all yours, my friends. And I've run the V2s in the studio and Lady Jupes 24-7, and they've been really solid. They're not always the best little RTSP streamers, and sometimes I have to reboot them. But the V3 is a clear upgrade. And one of the other areas that I think could be a nice improvement is it has more RAM and it has a faster CPU on its little SOC. So it could mean it also is a little better at RTSP streaming as well, which will be something I'll test when they release. When they release that, this is an easy recommend at $20. Why is just constantly astonish me with, with their price points? I mean, they've, they've just announced a smartwatch with over a week's battery life for $20 as well. So obviously I've ordered one of those. <laughs> oh, I love to hear how that goes too. And then maybe if you could plug the data in to Home Assistant, the Home Assistant iOS developer really knows his stuff. Mm -hmm. I have to say, it's remarkable. Home Assistant, when you look in the log, it knows like when I've likely am commuting and driving, so I can actually build automations around when I'm commuting. Um, it's incredible, like with what they can get uh, from the iOS device, with your permission, of course, and no massive hit to battery life. It you know it's really impressive. And one of the other features that he said he's adding is local notifications are coming to the iOS devices soon, too, with no internet connection required. So that's really great. Anyways, so just to wrap it up, uh, I'm very happy. And when they start shipping, because I was an early backer, so I got mine a little early. When they start shipping, I think I may swap out a couple of mine. I don't know if I need to do all of them, but I think I might pop out a couple of my twos and put a three or, put a three or two in. <laughs> Why is continually amaze me? All right, we really should get out of here, but thank you to our self-hosted site reliability engineers, selfhosted.show slash SRE if you want to support the show and get a limited ad feed and a little more extra content, you get the post show. And also check out our sponsor, A Cloud Guru on social. You can find them at slash A Cloud Guru on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. As ever, you can go to selfhosted.show slash contact, and that's the place to go and get in touch with us. And you can find me on Twitter at Ironic Badger. And the rumors are true. I am there as well, at Chris Lass, and the show is at Self Hosted Show. Don't forget the network at Jupiter Signal. I'm Alex, thanks for listening, and that was selfhosted.show slash 34. Well, we could shamelessly talk about food in the post show because I brought the smoker to the woods, but I, I really, besides a certain, uh, no, no, what do we, uh, pork loin. We did smoke a pork loin, but besides that, I only smoked Chex Mix the entire time. <laughs> oh, I'm so hungry. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, come on, it's pizza day for you. You should get yourself a pizza. Maybe I should. Yeah, every day is pizza day. I thought when we recorded self-hosted, you you try you you know treat yourself to a pizza. Uh, usually, yeah, but uh, yeah. We, we've moved to midday now, so it doesn't quite fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, I got to tell you though, if, if you have, you could try it too, you put you should try it. You should do Chex Mix in the smoker. It's really good. What is that? I know it sounds silly. Okay, well, I didn't realize. Yeah, of course you may. Have, it's like a childhood thing. So Chex Chex is a uh, a cereal. And then Chex Mix is you take like, uh, in my case, um, 
Cheez-Its, uh, pretzels, um, you know, a few other things, peanuts, whatever you like. And then you combine it with some Worcestershire sauce, some butter, some garlic, some onion salt. You kind of, you know, you, you, you kind of zhuzh it up and get it real nice. Uh, and then, um, like Hadia and some butter, Hadia has a great recipe that she does. And then I, I load it all into a pan, into like a foil pan, spread it as flat as I can get it. And then I just run the smoker like a 200 and, uh, you let it go for like an hour or hour and a half, two hours, whatever you can do. Just don't want to burn it. And it, it cooks all of those tasty, um, ingredients into the different things and then adds that layer of smoke. And when you're done, it's up. It's a it's a very tasty little treat, and it is exquisite with like a, a cold beer. It's like the two things you combine that with being in the woods, and it's it's practically paradise. I, I could picture you uh, sitting there at the desk with a bowl of it on one side and a beer on the other, or a beverage of your choice, or even sitting out on the back deck. It also makes for a great snack while you're smoking something else. <laughs> <laughs> Pitmaster's <laughs> treat. <laughs> So I, you know, speaking of power draw, I, I, uh, I hooked up a kilowatt to the uh, smoker to the oh, little, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just a little Davy Crockett green mountain grill. So it's a real small guy, you know, it fits in my storage bay. It only draws a hundred Watts to run the, uh, little pellet auger, the fan and whatever gets it, you know, burning hundred Watts. I would imagine at the, the start, like the, the, the kick up, the heat up phase is a bit more expensive, but, uh, not really to keep things at a temperature. Isn't too bad. It basically just hit a hundred Watts and kind of. That's where it stayed. <laughs> but it, I mean, we just ran it. We had that. We ran it all day, practically. It was pretty great. I think I've decided I want to instigate a new tradition. Now I have a smoker. Instead of, you know, so the US obviously does turkey for Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. But in England, we do turkey on Christmas Day. So I'm thinking, well, if we move the turkey up now that we're Americans, you know, Americans, yep. we move move the turkey day up to November. Thanksgiving. The and appropriate Chris, day. Christmas is now open we have a slot open and you know it's maybe traditional to do a ham or something like that but right i have the smoker i'm gonna go and buy a brisket and now we're gonna have christmas day brisket every year i've decided (laughs) that's the way to go that's the way to go i i support this you let me know how it goes i'm chris and i support this message (laughs) 